0: Well, the text that we're looking at this morning is probably the most famous of all of the uh, texts in the book of Exodus. If you uh, mention the story of Exodus, this is the one thing that people tend to know, whether they are people who have been in church uh, for their whole lives or Uh, They've never been in church. This is the story that they have heard. And this is the kind of the first climax of the book of Exodus, that it leads to uh, this moment. And of course, the moment that we're speaking of is the uh, crossing of the Red Sea. This moment where God parts the waters and the children of Israel make it through on dry land to the other side. That, that is what we are looking at this morning as we come to this uh, text now, because this is the case uh, that everyone is familiar with it, we often come to this wanting to marvel at the miracle, and of course that is something amazing that how God makes a way here, but the theme that underscores this and the and the the Word that Moses is pointing out here as he writes about this event is not just this mighty miracle, but highlighting and underscoring God's faithfulness, that he is indeed faithful to his word. He is the covenant-keeping God. And he will rescue and save just like he has previously. He has rescued and saved the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He has already done this through the work of these 10 plagues. And he brings the death of the firstborn. And now, as he comes to, uh, as we come to this text, he does the same thing once again, only through a uh, miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. And so we want to take a look at how God does that. But the circumstances surrounding that are also hugely important for what he's wanting to to teach them and grow them in and instruct them in. And so we look at uh, picking up in verse 17 as the stage is being set for this. And in chapter uh, chapter 13, we've got a lot of verses to cover, so we're going to try to go quick here. And we find the description... When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although the land was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, This is the first time in 430 years that the children of Israel are a free people. It's the first time that they've tasted this freedom outside of the land of Egypt. They're finally free. Now, we're told that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. Now, the route that they were going to, the most direct route to the promised land, was along the coastal highway. If they went straight from Egypt to the land of Canaan, the promised land, if they went right away, it would be about a seven to ten day journey. Like, this is just a straight up shot going that route. So, why not go direct? Why why do we not just come out of this land of 430 years of Oppression and stress, and and why, why wouldn't we just want to go direct? Well, it seems that the Lord has uh, some things that He wants to accomplish, and He's taking into account the hearts and minds of His people. If you see here, He tells them the reason that He did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines was because. He says, "Therefore God said, Let the, peop- uh, lest the people change their minds when they s- see war and return to Egypt." Now this is a people who had been oppressed for 430 years, and now they're trying to get out of the land of the Phil- or the, out of the land of Egypt, and they're making their way to the land of the Philistines who are inhabiting this land of Canaan, But the last thing that they want to experience is war right away. And so what God's doing here is he's protecting them from discouragement. He doesn't want to discourage the people. Now, the other thing that we find out just a little bit later is that he wants also to get glory over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And he also wanted to show his faithfulness to the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were going to face uh, great battles in their future, and they needed more of these markers of God's faithfulness. And so God doesn't lead them the quickest way. He doesn't take them in the most direct route, but he leads them in a way for his purposes. It tells us in verse 18, but God led the people of Israel around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So God directs the children of Israel south, away from Canaan, in the opposite direction that they're supposed to be headed into the wilderness, this is where they're where they're headed it's not the short shortest way it's not the most direct way, but it was the best way because it was god's way. God knew that his people couldn't handle this battle right away. He knew that they couldn't handle those hardships right away. He knew that they needed a break, and he also knew that they needed to take the long way around for specific purposes. Now, we see what those purposes are in just a moment. But it's worth it to to think about this for a second in our own places. You know, you and I kind of live in this uh, era of making the most logical decisions based upon a process of elimination. And usually that process comes down to uh, the path of least resistance. Whatever is the easiest, whatever is the quickest, whatever offers uh, the shortest route, the least amount of work, the, uh, the smallest hardship on, uh, on the way. Now, that's not to say that those, that path of least resistance is always the wrong way. But oftentimes, the Lord is doing something bigger in the route that he takes us in our lives. And we often doubt whether God's way is really the best way. Because we don't want to go through the hardships and the difficulties. And a lot of times, these things aren't even really hard. They just take longer than we want them to take. It's not even that they will do a lot more work. It's not that it will bring us into a position of of greater effort on our part. We're just impatient. And when we tend to get impatient, we tend to get grumpy. I know I do. And I would start acting like a fool, getting all upset at everybody. This is what happens. Because I'm a selfish jerk. And that's, what it, and that's what it comes down to. When I want my way, and I exalt my way above God's way, that's what it ends up with. Grumbling. He's working often in a way that we do not understand. And it's hard for us. We really like the bumper sticker. Like we really like the slogan of Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We're like, yeah. But when you're in the middle of it, you're like, no, like this is not a good idea. This is not a good plan. You're, you're not claiming that verse then. You're not like, oh yeah, things are terrible, this is awesome. That's not how we're thinking. But that is what we're called to think. What God is trying to teach us and trying to teach the children of Israel as he prepares them to see his faithfulness again and again. When things look bad, when things look like they are going downhill, there's actually a victory in sight. It's not the one maybe you're looking for, but it's the one that God is wanting to show. And so the children of Israel, they go up out of the land equipped for battle. Now, we just told, were told that they were trying to avoid war. So why in the world are they equipped for battle? Like, it seems like they were ready for war, right? Well, this phrasing here is actually um, not really saying that they were armed for battle and that they were prepared. Sure, maybe they had, some, uh, arm, uh, they had arms with them, perhaps. But what this more speaks to is the way that they were traveling. They were marching uh, in a formation, in, in an order. They might have been fully equipped for battle, but they certainly were not ready for war. They would not have been able to stand up as a discouraged people, a downtrodden people. And here, the Lord knows that he sends them uh, the, into the south. Now, we find a little side note here in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So Moses here, he fulfills the promise that uh, the Hebrew people made to Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. You can look it up there. And This is noteworthy here for us. It's not just a a, uh, matter-of-fact like, hey, they did what they said they were going to do. Well, this is noteworthy for us because they're remarking uh, and they're giving us a landmark here of another person in Israel's history who believed the promises of the covenant God. Joseph believed the promises. Right? That's what is described here. Joseph made the people promise. He made them solemnly swear, and he told them, God will be faithful. He will surely visit you and he will carry you up out of here. When you go, you take my bones with you. He's anchoring this action to his faith and God's faithful promises. And so they do this. They are fulfilling this, and they see this uh, promise that they made to joseph come to be fulfilled now we find in verse 21 a special uh, presence that will become for us a marker throughout the book this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire we read in verse 21 and the lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day And by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, depending upon day or night, is a manifestation of God's presence with his people. This is similar to how God appeared to Moses in the burning bush as a uh, bush that was burning, consumed. It was on fire, but yet uh, the bush was not itself being consumed. The fire was continually burning. It was this marker of God's presence. And here we find an increasing intensity of God's presence, of this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, and what will ultimately increase in intensity at uh, at the mountain of Sinai, where God will... Make his presence come down upon the mountain there. But here, this is the the beginning of this. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, is the manifestation of God's presence with his people. And this presence, the pillar, goes with the children of Israel always. They do not move unless the pillar moves, they do not stop unless the pillar stops. God's presence is always with his people. He has led them out of the land of Egypt to serve them, and now he goes with them everywhere that he would lead them. He's always present to guide his people. Now he does this in just two very helpful and very kind ways. as a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and a pillar of a fire in the night to give them light. Now, if you recall the danger that we spoke of, that would come with traveling at night. This is one of the uh, pitfalls of the plague of darkness. If you traveled at night, it wasn't like you know we had today, where there was paved roads and uh, we have you know these street lights that light everything up. It was rare to get a full moon and a cloudless night there. And so if you went out at night, you were often subject to uh, just the elements. There were uh, just a tremendous opportunity for danger with not knowing the landscape, not knowing where you were going, with animals that would come out at night. Um, You know, there was just a, a number of things That if you went out at night and tried to travel at night, you put yourself in a place where you were subject to uh, attack by thieves. Um, These were things that they were aware of, but also just the elements. The darkness brings this cold, and particularly in the desert, it just gets freezing. And so at night... The pillar of fire would be this warmth in the cold of the desert. It would be a light so that they would have the sole benefit of being the only people on earth who could travel at night. That had, they had this kind of, in a sense, headlight that went before them, that shone and, and gave them a path of where they were going to go. And if you recall, this isn't just, you know, 50 people. This is millions of people. So there had to be enough of a cast of this light that everybody could go and travel together. This is some serious light. Serious warmth here. But in the day, the pillar was a cloud providing them shade in the middle of the desert. How are you going to kind of protect millions of people from the elements, from the heat of the sun? But this cloud led them in the day, providing shade for them. It traveled ahead of them, the Israelites leading them wherever they would go. Now, at this point, it's only been, you know, a day or two. But this would go on, as we'll find out, for 40 years. This is not a natural uh, cloud formation. This is not a natural uh, element that's being Brought about, but this is the supernatural presence of God providing for his people. Now we read in verse 1 of chapter 14 the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of uh, Pi Hahiroth. I practiced that between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So here's the craziest thing of all of this, because they are on their way. They're out and escaping Egypt. They're making their way. And then the Lord tells Moses, hey, you guys should turn around and go back. Like, we just came from there. What do you mean we're going backwards? As the children of Israel, I would be like, couldn't we have just got that instructions, like, up front, like, hey, maybe just don't go too far. Like, that would have been really helpful, and we didn't have to walk all this extra distance, and then come back, and, like, we could have just cut off time, and we're also heading in the wrong direction. Uh, Maybe this was not a good plan. And ultimately, this decision leads to them being put in a worse situation, being trapped by Pharaoh, They go by these two cities that are listed here, and they're camped in front of uh, another city. And this uh, city, Migdal, was most likely an Egyptian uh, war fortress. This is something where they would have witnessed the children of Israel going by this fortress and then coming back like, oh, maybe we went the wrong way. So the Egyptians would have kind of witnessed this. Now, you and I being in this case, we, of course, would have been like, Maybe the Lord doesn't know what he's doing and maybe we just need to like, you know, take the wheel back from him and be like, look, this is where we're headed because clearly you're lost, God. And that's what it, it seems like. This is exactly what God wanted it to look like. This is exactly what he wanted them to see and understand. You see, they were already on the way to the promised land and God tells them to turn around and go camp between the desert and the sea. Now, the place where they come to camp between the desert and the sea was an absolute nightmare from a militaristic perspective. This was a terrible place, a terrible strategy. The positioning of this group of people was horrible. They would be trapped and it would be obvious to these Egyptians that they passed in this fort. It would be obvious to the inhabitants of these cities that they were in a bad position and it looked like they didn't know where they were going. And this is exactly what God wanted Pharaoh to think. Getting word back to him. And God's tricking, essentially, the Egyptians into thinking that the Israelites have zero idea about what they're doing. Look at verse 3. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Pharaoh, he gets word back. And he thinks he's got the upper hand here. He thought that he had won. He saw that the children of Israel were in a position of vulnerability. He saw that they were in a position of weakness. And he surely thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to reclaim all of my Hebrew slaves. They don't really know where they're going. They're wandering in the land. They're not used to navigating this desert. But what Pharaoh didn't see was that his pursuit of God's firstborn would lead to their freedom and the destruction of his army. It's in their obedience to follow the Lord and in the seemingly foolish nature of this plan that ultimately ends this Egyptian threat to the children of Israel. I mean, like, in my mind, I would have thought, like, okay, if the, if the land of Canaan is only, like, ten days away, like, what's, what's to stop, like, the greatest empire on earth from coming and just taking us back there? That, that would have been, like, a stress in my mind as, as somebody uh, who would have been living at that time. And so God is wanting to deliver his people with this final blow. In verse 5, we read, and we see Pharaoh's words, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. So if you notice there, it's not just Pharaoh, but the, all of the Egyptians, they have a change of heart. And they say, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So this highlights for us that Pharaoh never really truly repented of his sin. He never really surrendered himself to the Lord. He said that he was going to do what God wanted. But now we see he immediately changes his mind and he goes right back to his sin. And because he acts on this, because he refuses to submit, it ends in devastation and destruction to his army, to his people. It it brings death as he continues in his sin so verse 6 he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of egypt with officers all over all of them so this is the power of egypt coming to attack this wandering nation in the desert Pharaoh calls up about 600 of his best chariots. Usually this would be a driver and an archer on the back there. Somebody who would be able to shoot while uh, someone steered the vehicle. And this army that he assembles here is made up of officers. This isn't a group of low-ranking soldiers. Like This is his Egyptian special forces. This is the best of the best. And at the time, the chariot was the, uh, the most advanced military weapon. It was able to turn quickly to cover ground in, uh, very fast. You could catch up to an army on foot very, very quickly. And you would be able to maneuver around them, uh, moving from side to side uh, as you shot arrows towards your enemy. This was a terrifying sight. And so he assembles what he thinks is the most powerful army from the most powerful nation on earth. We read in verse 8, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Like, they're going out, like, we're leaving, we're on our way out of here. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-hahiroth in front of baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no, are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for, what it, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The children of Israel get the first glimpse of this army of chariots coming up upon them. They know the power and might of Egypt. They have seen it firsthand for 430 years. They have witnessed it. They have been Egypt's victims. But they've also seen the hand of the Lord absolutely thrash Egypt, humbling Egypt the Egyptians, putting the gods of Egypt just to absolute humiliation, destroying them again and again and again, all the while the children of Israel remaining untouched in their land, protected by their covenant God who promised to watch over them, to keep them. And so it's evident here that they forget God's faithfulness when they see When the people of Israel lift up their eyes and they see the Egyptians marching after them, they fear greatly. And instead of remembering how God has delivered them from Egypt, how God had brought plague upon plague upon the Egyptians, they look out upon their enemies with great fear and they begin to freak out. At the first sign of danger, they panic. They're like, oh shoot, this is about to get crazy. They panic And they go from being fearful to straight-up blaming Moses. You see the complaints that they've lodged with Moses? Like, who says, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here? (laughs) Like, what kind of, like, accusation is that? That is crazy. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? This is what they say. They say, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see, they have not developed a trust in God's faithfulness. And the only options that they're considering are death in the wilderness or slavery in Egypt. In their minds, God has not even become a consideration. It's Something that they are learning, that God is wanting to develop in them and show them. They still have not learned that God's purpose in bringing them out of Egypt is not just to save them, but to demonstrate his faithfulness and he will maintain his covenant promise to them. It wasn't just the rescue from Egypt, but his continued faithfulness to keep them and protect them see, and a lot of times we fall into the same situation when we deal with hardship. As we think about the things that we're facing, our only options a lot of times that we think are die in the wilderness or slavery in Egypt. We don't even consider the fact about what God might be doing, how he might be working. And even if we do consider it, if, a lot of times we go straight to the, it's got to be a, a better situation than I'm in now, rather than considering Maybe the Lord's going to tell us to go back to the place that we've already been. We don't want to go back there. Lord, why are you telling me to go backwards? We already went there. I don't want to downgrade. I don't want to move backwards. But if the Lord is calling us there, we should go. If the Lord's telling us to move backwards into a place that he's previously had us, that's where we should go. And we struggle with this as uh, modern people, and we struggle with this as just Americans. Because our idea is equal or better. That's like what we're looking for. No cell phone companies ever offer you a downgrade. They always offer you an upgrade. You want a new cell phone? Boom, two-year two contract, you can get an upgrade. No one's ever, you know, kicking you down like the old Nokia with the snake game. That's not an option that you can choose. Because that's how we live in this time. But oftentimes, God doesn't call us to that. He calls us to obey Him where He leads us. And sometimes, He leads us to what looks like backwards, but it's so that we can go forwards into something that He is calling us to, that He's preparing and laying the groundwork for, foundation for. So when He calls us to go backwards, we need to be aware that we're going to go forward into that in obedience, We're going to follow him in obedience, knowing that there's probably something there that we're not seeing. Now Moses, he understands this. He says to the people in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, only ha- you have only to be silent. You see, the children of Israel were faithless. They were full of fear, anxiety, and they went straight to worry and blame. They, they follow this natural course. But Moses knew what to do. He focused on the faithfulness of the covenant God. And he seeks to focus them upon the faithfulness of the covenant God. He says, fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He is confident in the promises of God. and He's pointing them to that. He says, the Egyptians that you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses gives them these three commands, fear not, stand firm, and be silent. Now, what he's saying here is like, look, you guys aren't even a part of this battle. You're camping, and the Lord's going to have like this epic battle, and you're just going to keep camping. Like, that's basically what's happening. He's not like, well, you better get ready, because it's going to get crazy, They're already fearful and the Lord hasn't told them to prepare for battle. He hasn't told them any of that. They're just camping and hanging out and being God's people. Salvation is all God's work and that is what he will do for the people here. He will rescue and save and he doesn't ask them to do a thing. They don't contribute. They're not a part of it. They just hang out. And they trust that the Lord will work for them today. Now Moses tells them at the end there, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Right? Which kind of sounds like it's this nice, like, encouraging word. Like, guys, just, you don't have to do anything, just be silent. And in a sense, he's, he's saying that. But the, but the, the word that he's giving them here is one to call them to have faith. He's not saying, here's who God is, and your job is just to be quiet. He's saying, shut up and stop complaining. Here's who God is. This is an angry response. He's he's upset with their faithlessness. He's saying, quit complaining. And sometimes, you know, we don't want to hear it when we're in these situations, but sometimes the thing that we need to hear is stop your complaining, stop your whining about you think things are terrible and things are all going you know, off the rails. Sometimes we just need to be told, like, shut up, like, trust in the Lord. Just listen and look at his faithfulness. He's never failed you. He's never failed anyone. Stop complaining. We don't need like, the little like, soft hand-holding. Sometimes that's appropriate. But when we're contrasting this with God's faithfulness, we want to see God's faithfulness magnified, not just our change in attitude. Oh, here's what you really need to work on. It's No, look at Jesus. Look at how faithful and wonderful he has been. Look how he has saved and rescued. Remember what he has done already for you and for me at the cross. And so the Lord, he understands this. We find in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, Moses here, he receives this rebuke that is meant for the children of Israel. Moses, we see, he knows what to do. But he's a representative of the people. And so God speaks to Moses and said, Why are you crying out? He's telling Moses to tell them, like, Look, quit it. Go forward. And he tells Moses in verse 16 instructions about how they should go forward. Because right now, there's no way to go forward. We read in verse 16, "...lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground." Moses is told to lift up his staff here, just like before in all the other miracles. But again, it is God who will do the work of dividing the sea. It is God who performs this miracle. He is the one who delivers the children of Israel to the other side safely. The Lord tells Moses, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. All the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So the mightiest nation on earth with the most advanced weaponry with its most elite soldiers, is no match for the Lord. They will stupidly follow the children of Israel down into the sea. As they make their way through there, God will show up and fight for Israel. And through the destruction of the army, God will get his glory over Pharaoh. We read in verse 19, The angel of the Lord, or excuse me, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So, the presence of God moves to the other side, separating the army of Egypt from the children of Israel, separating them. And on one side, there is light. They were able to see. They are able to navigate and go forward as God illuminates their path, their way of escape, showing them how they ought to be free. But on the other side... The people of Egypt, these armies of Egypt, who oppose the Lord, are in darkness. There's a divide. Now, if I'm an Egyptian, I'm, this is starting to freak me out here because we've already gone through this. The last time we were in darkness for any period of time, the next thing that happened was all of a sudden people were dead. So, this would have been a reminder of the ninth plague. It should have been a clear sign to Pharaoh what was up next. Death followed this darkness. And so we read in verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So again, we're told that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, Uh, But this time it's made clear that the Lord drove back the sea. It was the Lord working. And he did this by a strong east wind all night that made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Now, this east wind is the same east wind that God used earlier that blew in this plague of locusts. And the waters are divided in the same manner. It's caused by the Lord. (coughs) And the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they make their way down into the sea, crossing upon dry ground. The Lord makes a way for his people when there's absolutely no way to escape. He's set them in this terrible position from a military standpoint. He's put them in having them retrace their steps so they just look like they absolutely have no clue what they're doing. Then he has them go camping. All the while, Pharaoh is lured into this trap. And God makes a safe passage for his people through dry ground. And he protects them on all sides. If you notice there, they have the presence of God that guards their rear make sure that they are protected. But then on both sides of them, they have two walls of water, which would ordinarily, this water would, will bring judgment, but because God is protecting them, these walls are used to uh, guide them, to show them the path, to protect them from the potential of any incoming arrows. You couldn't even see them as they made their way. The Lord protects his people in this manner. Now we read in verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, and the Egyptians said, "Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians." So the sea is parted. The Egyptians they follow in pursuit. The horses, the chariots, the horsemen they go into the parted sea to capture God's people. But things suddenly turn bad for the children of uh, for the children of Israel, or excuse me, for the Egyptians. The Lord throws the Egyptians into this terrifying panic. They realize what's about to happen. And the dry ground begins to get muddy, causing their chariots to become stuck, hard to drive. And the most advanced weaponry in the world, the very thing that the children of Israel feared earlier, now becomes their downfall. Their chariots are useless. And the children and the Egyptians, they note, they recognize that God is fighting for Israel. They say, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Egyptians knew exactly who it was that attacked them, because the children of Israel never lifted a hand against them. They went camping and then they went for a walk. That's essentially what happened. But the Lord is getting his glory over Pharaoh. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So after the sea begins to return to its natural state, the Egyptians are kind of still on their way down into it. They're making their way down into this as this is happening, and they're totally confused. They're thrown into this panic, and as they approach the water as this as you've ever seen a, a sweeping wave come through or the tide come through, comes through, it rushes up and then it pulls back. And that appears to, to be what has happened here. As, this, as the water comes through, as the, the force of it comes together again, it pushes up and then pulls everything back into it. They're swept into the sea. God completes his victory, throwing them all into the sea But we find in verse 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is a a contrast verse there. It's not chronological. After the water comes back, they're still cruising. They walk safely through the sea. Verse 30, thus The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The Lord is faithful to his promise. He delivers his people. He rescues and saves When it looks like there is no way, when it looks like they are about to be defeated, it's in precisely their obedience that the Lord brings the destruction of their enemy. And they see the victory that God has given them. They see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Proof to them, to the Israelites, that their escape is now complete. That they will not be bothered. God has had victory over the Egyptians. And the Lord all, often calls us into these situations. Looks like we're going backwards. Looks like we're in a pretty bad situation. But somehow he gets his victory. He did this 2,000 years ago as Jesus walked the earth, living upon this earth in our place, a perfect life. And I'm sure Satan thought he was In that place of victory, as Jesus was being nailed to the cross, there he's like, Done. I've won. But little did he know that it was all a ruse, and that in Jesus' death, Satan would be defeated, death would be conquered, and that we would have new life, and that Christ would be resurrected. It was precisely through that way of weakness a foolish-looking plan that the Lord rescues and saves. He conquers once and for all. You and I can have faith, strong faith, in a covenant God because he will keep his word and we have plenty, plenty of evidence that he has been faithful throughout the years. My prayer is that we would grow in faith together as we look to him and that we encourage each other to have faith in our covenant God when we're going through difficulties when we're going through uh, hard situations that we wouldn't comfort each other with soft words but that we would point each other to the faithfulness of Christ who he is and what he has already done for us that we have been adopted into his family we've been accepted because of the work that he has done at the cross something that I look forward to growing in with with you all. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word and that we have this wonderful story of the crossing of the Red Sea, the exodus out of Egypt. Lord, we're thankful that you demonstrate your faithfulness to us again and again and that we have this wonderful track record of you being so good and so faithful to us. And so, Lord, remind us of that again and again. We want to be established in that so we can be like Moses when things get difficult, when things are hard, when things just don't even seem like they're making sense, that we can know that we uh, we don't have to be afraid, and that we can stand firm in your promises, in your character, that you will be who you are, and that you don't change. Lord, we're we're so thankful that you are faithful again and again and we want to grow in pointing each other to that. Lord, we don't want to be like the children of Israel who were grumbling and complaining and only looking at the two options of death or slavery, but we want to trust in your faithfulness, in your goodness. You never change. Forever you are the same. And so, Lord, we can look to you. We can trust in you. Grow our faith. Increase it, Lord, as we see your faithfulness to us. We love you. Amen.